Today, our reading will come from Revelation 1, 7 through 20. Verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, a companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like white, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. For those of you who have been here for past uh, few months, we spent quite a bit of time in the book of Proverbs with the intention of, of gleaning wisdom from that book to live holy lives. And we concluded that series with a fundamental understanding that you cannot live a wise life, a holy life, apart from having Jesus Christ as your everything. Where He is your foundation, He is your greatest lover, He is the, the ultimate person in your life. And then we looked at, we said, okay, if that's true, then we, then we spent 14 weeks looking in the book of Hebrews at who is this, this person. And we did a 14-week Christology of the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And we saw him in so many different lights as, as our counselor and as our brother and as our redeemer and our savior. And, and then we ended Hebrews in the last couple of weeks with um, what some of you have called a radical call to community, and I would agree. It is radical because it's unlike that which we know in this world. And we saw, I pray that you did, you saw that, it's, that our right worship of God now, unlike under Leviticus and the Old Covenant, through the New Covenant of grace in Christ, is to have a true Philadelphia brotherly love for one another, that we are loving each other as Christ has called us to love. And then we saw that in order for that love to be manifest, it will, it will take the shape of shepherding, of being shepherded, and growing and holding each other accountable and experiencing life together. And I thought it was prudent 
And I thought it would be prudent for us to say, okay, if that's real, if that's the radical call to the community, then what, what does the Lord have to say to the church? And in the New Testament, there are lots of letters. You know, you have, you have Peter and Paul and James and John, and they're all writing letters to church, but there's only one place in the New Testament where Christ himself speaks and has letters written to seven different churches. And that's found here in the book of Revelation in chapter 1. My hope is that we can, over the next eight weeks, because this one, we're not going to look at the letters in specific, but we will see in those letters what Christ is saying to us at Camden Avenue. We will be encouraged and we'll be uplifted by the things that are affirmed and we will be convicted and desire to turn and change on those things that we say, hey, you know what, we're not doing that right. But before we do that, before we get into the first letter, we must see first who is speaking. We must hear, we must see the vision that that John had so that when you hear the letters that are going out and we take it in the context of Camden Avenue, it won't just be, oh, it's just another passage, just another scripture verse. Christ himself in the glorified state gave these instructions, these words of encouragement and these, these rebukes to John. And so... This morning, what I'd like to do, uh, what, I, what I would like us to do, is to look at the vision that he had. Who is this glorified Christ? This, this God-man. And from this, we'll see three things. One, we will see what it means to live in the light of a judgment day. Number two, what it means to live in the light of God's face. And number three, what it means to live in light of this present suffering. Judgment day, God's face, and present suffering. Let's, let's get started. Verse 7. It gives us this magnificent um, teaching and it says, Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ, this is, this is orthodox doctrinal teaching. We know that, we, most of us know the first, the first coming or what we call the first advent. When he came again, he came the first time as an infant. He was born in a manger, right? He lived under the care of, care of uh, Joseph and Mary. And then he, he, he preached and he ministered and he healed and he proclaimed the gospel. And then he was arrested and he suffered and he died and he was buried. And then he rose again and then he ascended. First coming. Radical. This is talking about his coming again. This is the second advent. This is when he comes again as a judge. This is when he comes again as a glorious king. In fact, the Apostles' Creed put it well, for those of you who are creedalists who came out of a liturgical tradition. It says, He will come again in glory, He will judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. A real second coming. Now, liberal mainline churches for years have said, you know, it's a, it's a great teaching, it's very encouraging, but He's not really going to come. And he comes in the sense that when, when you believe, when you have faith, and then you begin to live out the life of Christ, he comes through you. I mean, you are Christ on earth. You, he's being manifest in your life. And so we, we treat it as symbolic. But the problem is, it says specifically that every eye will see him. In fact, the sacred scriptures, again and again, all the New Testament talk about a real, radical intervention by God again, where He will come again in glory and He will establish His kingdom. So we know that's real. So the conservative churches go, that's right, that is real. And they, they pound that drumbeat. The problem is, conservative churches, they don't twist it to make it symbolic. They get all hooked up on when. When's He going to come? What's the day? What's the hour? 
Our Lord in His teaching says, no one knows the day or the hour. In fact, Christ in His incarnate form said, I don't even know the day or the hour. So stop trying to figure it out. And the reason He was bent out of shape about us trying to figure it out is because we know why we're trying to figure it out, right? We know in our sinful state, if I can find out exactly when, then I can do whatever I want up until that point. You know the deathbed confessions? But you don't know when. In fact, if you, if, you're all, if you try really hard to figure out when, it reveals that you don't understand why it was taught in the first place. Why the second coming was not revealed in the hour or the day. We are to treat it in such a way that it will actually change the way we live now, at this present time. In fact, look at verse 7 again. It says, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. You know what the book of Revelation is about, don't you? I mean, we get, all, we get all weird about the book of Revelation. It gets, you know, people get bothered by it. And they, it verse 1, chapter 1, it says, This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Christ unveiled. It's Christ revealed. It's the real glorified Christ. With much detail, yes, in the eschatology, the end times. But it's about Jesus Christ. It's about who He really is rather than the idols and figures of who we think he is in our minds. Grant Osborne, in his commentary, he put it like this. I love it. Talking about the, the book of Revelation and the second coming. He said, The nations of the earth and the book of Revelation are the object of both mission and judgment. The nations are to be offered the gospel of Jesus Christ in love and simultaneously warned that evil and injustice and sin will be accounted for. Therefore, it is... It is our part to participate in the former, the mission, but to remember that God will take care of the latter, the judgment. Now, why is that so important? I mean, why is that important for us today? How will that change us today? I firmly believe that you cannot live out a day-to-day Christian life as you ought without an understanding and a firm belief in the second coming of Jesus Christ as the judge. In fact, I would go so far as that you can't even be emotionally stable in your life as a believer, unless you believe that He's going to come again in glory and He will judge. Why? The default mode of the human heart is to cover our own flaws, cover our own sins, to not see ourselves clearly, but be fantastic about pointing everybody else's flaws out. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we, there's so many things about ourselves that we deny... But man, we're the first people to say, oh, but that person... And we, we can give you ten items with each person as to you know, the things they're doing wrong, right? I mean, if someone else lies, they're a liar. But when you lie, it's complicated, right? Someone else forsakes the gathering of the church, you know? They don't, they're not involved in community. You know, you say, well, they're an isolationist. They're an individualist. They're outside of Scripture. When you do, you're busy. Hmm? We constantly justify who we are. And we look at other people with condemnation and pointing our finger. But here's the beautiful thing about the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. It reverses everything. Do you know that? If you firmly believe that Christ is going to come again at an unappointed time and an unappointed hour, then it will completely reverse your approach of self-glorification and others' condemnation to self-reflection and grace. How so? Well, think about it. If you do not know when Christ is going to come, and none of us do, it could be this very hour. It could be during this sermon. (laughs) So you're saying, praise God. It should be a praise. It's a great thing. Hopefully not because I'm talking too long, though. You need to be in a position in your life 
where you are ready for his coming. That you'll bear up under the scrutiny of the brilliant light that he will bring, under the judgment that he will bring. It means that at any moment, if you know that he could break into, break back into our space-time continuum, that you have to be thinking and saying and acting or not acting in a manner that would not leave you embarrassed. That would not, you would not find yourself condemned in his presence. Now, what, that, that brings about a great deal of, separate, of, of self-reflection on a moment-by-moment basis. You know what that does? That humbles us. That creates in us not a spirit of others' condemnation, but a spirit of self-reflection. Say, am I right right now? If Christ were to come right now, are my thoughts right? Is my speech right? Am I living in a manner that will bring Him honor and glory or disgrace? Will I be ashamed? Will I be embarrassed? And in doing that, when we ask ourselves those questions, it brings great humility. And at the same time, we realize... That he will come and he will judge. And so instead of pointing the finger at everybody else going, Oh, you know, you're in big trouble. You better get right. You will examine yourselves and you will leave the judgment to him. In fact, look again at, at, Romans, look at, at Revelation 1.7. It says, Look, he is coming with the clouds. This is, there's a preposition here that is so missed. It doesn't say he is coming through the clouds. You know, this, this incoming, you know, Jesus Christ blasting through the clouds. It doesn't say that he's coming on the clouds like he's riding them. We have these images, right? It's just literally, and most of the commentators point out, he's coming with them. He's bringing the clouds with them. You think, what? Well, they have clouds in heaven? It's not, it's not a, a meteorological event. This is not moisture. When it says he's bringing the clouds, he's talking about the Shekinah glory cloud, the, cloud that, the clouds that descended on Mount Sinai, the clouds that filled the temple and the tabernacle, the cloud of glory. And you know what that means? That means that when He comes, He's going to bring the glory of God back to earth. And in bringing the glory of God, He will bring judgment, and He'll bring righteousness, and He will make things right. He will take a world that is completely broken as a result of sin, and He will restore and make things new. He's coming to judge. He will judge. And it's such a glorious thing that the psalmist writes this in the 96th Psalm. Listen. The psalmist says, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant, and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy, they will sing before the Lord. For He comes, He comes to judge the earth, He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in His truth. The heavens will rejoice, the fields, the trees will sing. Do you know why? Because the judge is going to come back, and He's going to make wrong right. He will come. And so, the doctrine of the second coming is not some theological, abstract future event. It has a real and should have an immediate impact on the way you live today. And that is this. It should humble you. Since you do not know the day nor the hour, and I do not recommend that you try to guess, it means that right now, you will ask yourself, am I right? Am I living in such a way that will bring God honor and glory? Are my thoughts pure? Is my speech correct? You will ask yourself this in light of the gospel of grace. And at the same time, you will cease constantly pointing your finger because you are not the judge. God is the judge. Do you see how it will change the way you are now? Completely. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a fantastic essay called The World's Last Night. In it he writes this, The doctrine of the second coming teaches us that we do not and cannot know when the world drama will end. 
The curtain may be rung down at any moment. Therefore, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. Our Lord repeated this practical conclusion again and again and again. You do not know when the Master will come. You do not know when the King will come down. We don't know this. And that means that you have to live now in the scrutiny of the light that Christ will bring. Not in the shadowlands. Not in the dimness that we have here. Have you, ever, have you ever been shopping and you're looking at something under a fluorescent light and you think you like it, and then you take it out in the sunlight and you think, oh, that's terrible. Or if you've ever tried to pick out a paint color in the paint stores, you know, counsel here, always take the paint color outside in the sun. It looks re- dramatically different. And if you've ever used... My wife, by the way, is in the nursery and I got permission to use this story, okay? She used to, many years ago, she used to use that... Uh, the, the tanning lotion, where you put it on. And she would put it on at night. <laughs> at night! You know, before she'd go to bed. And she'd slather it on, and you could kind of see it. And it looked okay at night. And then she'd get up in the morning, in the light of day, and it was like, <gasps> you know, and she'd be orange. One time, she was orange. <laughs> it was hysterical. And she's in the shower scrubbing. If we live, if we live now... With our character, our thoughts, our speech, our actions, not doing what we ought in the dimness of this time, then when the light of Christ comes, when the scrutiny of Christ comes, you will be as mortified as when you rub orange liquid all over your body. C.S. Lewis continued and he said this, I do not find that pictures of the physical catastrophe, the sign in the clouds, the heavens rolled up like a scroll, I do not find these help one so much as the naked idea of judgment We cannot always be excited. We can perhaps train ourselves to ask more and more often how the thing which we are saying or doing or failing to do at each moment will look when the irresistible light streams in upon it. That light which is so different from the light of this world and yet even now we know just enough of it to take it into account. How will you be seen when that light comes. When that brilliant, radiant, judging light comes. How will you appear? It should cause us on one hand to be incredibly humble and to, to seek to be right at ever, every single moment. And on the other hand, not to constantly be sitting in judgment of others. God is the judge. He will come. He will sit on His throne. Paul even says in Romans 14, 4, he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant to his own master? He stands or falls. Do you see how it shifts everything? We, we are so consumed with other people's faults and not with our own, and we sit here condemning others rather than saying, Who am I right now before Christ? What if he were to come right now? Self-reflection, humility, and grace instead. Besides, Isaiah made it very clear. For those of you who constantly sit pointing fingers, no one's going to get away with anything. Do you know that? Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5, Man will be brought low and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice and the Holy God will show Himself holy by His righteousness. The second coming of Jesus Christ should should bring, for those who have been saved by grace, a great deal of peace and poise and humility and grace. Do you have it? I mean, does the doctrine of the second coming bring that to you? Do you know that? 
Do you know that peace that transcends all understanding? Can you say that I am right before Christ and I am striving to that end? My thoughts, my speech, my actions, my lack of action. We could end right there. Let's go to the second point, number two. Living in light of the second coming, living in light of God's face. What do I mean by that? Something extraordinary here, and it's subtle, so I want to make sure I unpack it correctly for you. We are not only called to live in light of, of the second coming of Christ, which is a real historical universal event, and every eye will see, but we must live in, in the light of God's face. In verse 17, it says, when, this is John saying, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Not dead, stunned, but not dead. Why? I mean, this is, this is the Apostle John. This is John the Beloved. This is the man who would lay his breast, his head upon Jesus' breast when they would recline at the table. This man knew Christ incarnate, and yet he sees him in his glorified state, and he falls down. He can't take it. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's a vision of a magnitude that we can't even put into words. One of those, you have to be there to see it. But he tries. Verse 14, it says, His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. You know what he's saying? He, he said it was like staring directly into the sun. It was like experiencing the heat of a massive furnace. It was like hearing all the oceans roaring at one time. It was so overwhelming that I fell down as though I were dead. But not dead. And that's what's so extraordinary. Not dead. This Tom Skinner, he is now, he's now with our Lord, but he was a pastor, an African-American pastor in Harlem for years. He was raised in the church. And before he came to a saving grace, he would go to church with his mom and dad. He'd go to Sunday school in an all-black church in an all-black neighborhood. And, of course, they had the traditional publications probably from the Southern Baptist Convention. And they had these pictures of a white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Messiah. And you know what those pictures are like at Sunday school. They're fantastically hilarious, right? I mean, he's, he's, so, he's so quaffed, right? I mean, he's just, his hair's perfect, and he's very soft-looking, you know, and there's always sheep around him or children. And you know what this guy says? He says, I don't know who that guy is, but I know this. He wouldn't last ten minutes in my neighborhood. <laughs> what about this Jesus? What about this Jesus that John saw? Not the baby in the manger. Not the, the false portrait that we see in Sunday school. But this Christ. He would last. In fact, the operative question is, would the neighborhood last? Would we last? Would you last? Would I? The answer, of course, is no. Every single person that comes in the presence of God falls down and they either die or it's as though they're dead. Without exception in all of sacred scripture. They can't take it. They can't see his face. Again and again we see this taught. It was as though he was dead. And you say, well, well, we're mincing words. So important. John saw the glorified face of God in Christ, but he did not die. Did you hear that? The Old Testament, listen, the book of Revelation, you know one third of the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. One of the reasons we struggle so much with the Old Testament, I mean, the book of Revelation, is because we don't know the Old Testament. In fact, in this single passage here where it's describing Christ, it's taken from Daniel chapter 7, Ezekiel chapter 43, and Isaiah chapter 11. And in those chapters, they're describing the glorious nature of God. And right here, John, through Christ, brings it down and says, This is Christ. 
And all those descriptors are brought together in the person of the glorified Lord. And the most outstanding is in verse 16. Look where it says, His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Why is that the most important one? Because of this. Again and again and again we are told that, if, that we cannot look upon the face of God without dying. That it will kill us. That to look upon the, the, the unveiled brilliant face of a holy God will bring death. And yet here, Jesus Christ in His glorified state, shining the brilliance of God. His face is shining, radiant. And what happens? John doesn't die. It's as though he's dead, but he's not killed. In fact, it goes one step further in verse 17. Not only does he not die, but the glorified Christ reaches down and it says, He placed His right hand on me and it said, Do not be afraid. Do you see this? This is incredible. In Daniel chapter 10. And all the commentators point this out. Daniel has a very similar vision. Very similar. In fact, let me read it to you. Daniel says, gazing at this great vision, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking. And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep as though he were dead. My face to the ground. He's terrified. He's overwhelmed. He's dying. And then it says, an angel touched him. And an angel comforted him. And an angel tells him, do not be afraid. And an angel reveals more. You know why? Because the God, the vision that Daniel had, could not, he couldn't touch him. Couldn't touch him because Daniel would have died. And he needed Daniel to do some more prophecy, right? So he couldn't kill him. So he had an angel touch him. But here, what do we see? John is touched by Christ. The glorified God shining in all of His brilliance, His face. He's touched by Him. And John doesn't die. John is touched by God. John is said, God says to John, don't be afraid. God comforts him. God reveals more. Do you see? Well, I said, why are you belaboring this? It is so imperative. Jesus Christ in His glorified state, because of the work on the cross, is able to touch to comfort and to heal directly without killing us. All right, I got to go back. Genesis chapter 2. Remember? We're going to do some dot to dot here. Genesis chapter 2. In the garden, seeing God's face, you were created, we were created to be in His presence, in His, you say, in His face. That's a good thing because in His face is all the glory, all the honor, all the love, all the beauty you've ever wanted. His presence. And we had it before the fall. In the garden, walking in the cool of the day with the living God. And you know what that means? That means all the love that you go after now, all the, all the assurance that you strive for and the significance and the popularity and the prestige that you try to get from your peers and your family and your friends and your co-workers, all the beauty in every sunset and in every masterpiece and in every piece of music and in every article of clothing and every piece of architecture, everything, the beauty, the love, the assurance is found perfectly and completely in the face of God. In the garden they had that. In fact, the psalmist, if you've read through the psalms, I'll give you a few here. Again and again, it says, Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy. Psalm 11, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see His face. 
Psalm 27, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Psalm 105, look to the Lord and and his strength. Seek his face always. Again and again, it's calling us to his face, to see his face, because there's the beauty, there's the honor, there's the glory. Everything that your heart wants. All your desires fulfilled in him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. You were built for Him and by Him to be in His presence, to gaze upon His face, to worship Him, to serve Him, to love Him, and to be loved by Him. I cannot, I cannot, you see, you hear my voice, I cannot make this more poignant. This is why you, you were purposed to this end. You were built to this end. And you're like, good, give it to me. We can't. I can't. Because i got to go from Genesis 2 to Isaiah chapter 6. And you know what happens in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision also. And he's ushered into the throne room of God. And Isaiah doesn't even see his face. Because had he, he would have died too. But he comes in. He's just getting close to the throne. And what happens? Isaiah says this. Woe to me. He cried, I am ruined. Literally, I'm coming undone. I'm coming unraveled. I'm decaying. I'm disintegrating. I'm falling apart. I'm dying. Why? He says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. He's dying. Now, if you're still listening, you have to be saying, well, wait just a minute. You're saying on one hand that all the love, all the beauty, all the joy, all that I want is found in the face of God. And I say, yes. And you're saying on the other hand, if I look on His face, I die. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, think about it. If, if the one thing that you need most will kill you, then what's the solution? What's the problem? You know the problem, right? You know the problem. It's sin. The one thing you need the most, you cannot have because of your sin. The one thing that will bring you the greatest love, the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction, you cannot have because of the sin. If you get it in your sinful state, apart from the saving grace of God, you will die. You know what's amazing? There's no other creature that God created in this predicament. A fish needs water. You give a fish water, they live, they thrive. Plants, most plants, plants need sunlight. Hmm? You give a plant sunlight, it lives and it thrives. People need the presence, the face of God. You give people the face of God and they die. Only man, as a result of sin cannot have the very thing he needs the most. And he said, well, this is a fine dilemma that we have ourselves in. I mean, what a predicament. The very thing that you're telling me that will make me the most satisfied, the most happy, that will enable me to, to live and worship as I was purposed to live and worship, now you're telling me I can't have. And the answer is yes and no. For, think about it like this. When the very heart of sin, the very heart of sin is you being your own master. It's, it's, we be, we're, we're our own lords, our own masters, our own saviors. It's the world revolves around us, right? We make ourselves happy. We, we carve our own path and we, we are happy and satisfied based upon our works and our accomplishments and what we can do. We ask the questions and we answer them based upon our own successes. How many of you have seen The Blind Side with Sandra Bullock? There was a great part in there that stopped me. Sandra Bullock, she, a true story with Michael Orr, she rescues him out of a, um, a terrible situation where he's, he's essentially without a home. Um, and he disappears for a moment in the movie. 
And she sits down on the bed next to her husband. And she says, am I a good person? I'm like, oh, oh, oh. just thinking, answer it right, man. Come on, this is your chance. And he says, you're the best person I know. And I'm like, oh. She was justifying herself. She was justifying her identity. She was giving herself significance based upon being a good person in what she was doing, not in the work of Christ, not in the work of God. And to the degree that we do that, to the degree that we find our significance and our identity and our justification and our righteousness in our work, you know what? You will always be disappointed. Think about it like this. If you, if you are identified by being smart... And this brings you great satisfaction and great joy. What happens when you come into the presence of someone who's ten times smarter than you? You know what happens. You've experienced this. You begin to decay. You begin to suffer. Right? And this person, this is who you are. And this person, in their presence, you look stupid. You look foolish. But it's not just intelligence. If, if your identity is based upon athletic prowess, if your identity is based upon the amount of money you make, or your identity is based upon the number of relationships you have, your popularity. Whenever you come into someone's presence who's better or faster or stronger, you literally, the weight, listen, the weight of their glory, their superlativeness brings you down. It causes you to suffer decay. Now, if that happens in human relationships, imagine what's going to happen when you bring your intelligence and your popularity and your finances and your strength into the presence of a holy, perfect God. You'll be crushed. You'll be decimated. You'll be incinerated. You'll be destroyed completely. And that's why you cannot stand. That's why no one can stand. No one can stand in the presence of God. No one. In fact, this, is, this single dilemma explains all human suffering. You know that? Every problem that mankind has is explained in this single dilemma. That you were created to be in the presence of God, to see His face, to experience His beauty, His love, and you can't have it because you're a sinner. And then we get to Revelation chapter 1. And everything turns. Daniel had to be touched by an angel. John was touched by God Himself. Daniel, in the presence of God, saw his... Daniel going down to the ground. John... As though he's dead, but not dead. Touched, restored, renewed in the glorious face of a risen Savior. And do you know why? Jesus can say to John, do not be afraid. Do you know why? Because it says, Christ had the keys to death and Hades. Christ is saying, listen, that's a right response, John. But I've done the work for you. To see my glorious face is death, but I've died for you. And Revelation chapter 1 is so profound because it's the first experience we have with the glorified, not just the risen Savior, but the glorified risen Savior. And his, He's glorious. And, and John is experiencing that. And He's not dying. Do you know why? Because Jesus Christ took the death. Jesus Christ took the sin. Jesus Christ entered into the judgment and the hell and the punishment. Why? So Christ could touch us. So Christ Himself, not an angel, but God Himself, could come, Emmanuel, and be in our presence, and comfort us, and guide us, and touch us, and be our God, and we be His people. With this understanding, my beloved, listen. The face of God changes. It is something that you need. It's something that you ought to want. And because of the saving work of Christ on the cross, it's now something that you can have. Now, at this moment, 
with this understanding bit by bit, we get more power, more joy from the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The second coming, the face of Christ, and lastly, the present suffering. Are you still with me? Nod your head if you're still with me. Look at verses 12 and 13. The question is, well, how... And this is easy to say, Pastor. The joy and the love and the beauty in the face of Christ. That that I can have this face now and I won't be killed because of His work. But this is... It's hard in this life. There's suffering. There's tragedy. There's hardship. There's anxiety. It's hard. John doesn't deny that. In fact, he brings it to its... It's a culmination here in verses 12 and 13. Listen. John turns. He said, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. We're going we're gonna to develop this lampstand lamp stand theme uh, more over the next several weeks. But it's real simple in its fundamental teaching. The lampstands are the churches. And it's a great metaphor. The lampstand is to bring light to the dark world, right? We're that city upon the hill, casting light, casting the gospel of truth out. Camden Avenue is to be that lampstand in a dark place, in this dark community. And it says this, that we are to be the light to people who are suffering. And because we bring the truth and the light to people who want to be in the darkness, there will be suffering on our part. There will be pain. There will be persecution. In fact, throughout the book of Revelation, John gives us a glimpse of the persecution. And it is dramatic and horrific. But he reveals that in the midst of this great suffering, there's great hope. In fact, just to give you a few, John's saying, listen, there, and, and part of this played out in human history, and part of it, I believe, will play out again in the future. But he says, some of you are going to be impaled on a stick, and you're going to be covered with tar, and you are going to be lit on fire, and you will be used as human torches to illuminate the night. He says, some of you will be thrown to the lions. Some of you will be dismembered. Some of you, he said will actually be um, crucified. And this actually happened during the reign of Nero. And you will line the roads of Rome going in and out of the city. Some of you, he said, you'll have, they'll, they'll take and they will drill a hole in your head and pull molten, pour molten lava in, in your head while you're alive. Now he's saying this. Listen, I know you go, mm, but listen. He's saying this. In the midst of this suffering, there is hope. Why? Here's why. Look. In this furnace of suffering. You know, the Bible talks about a furnace. And we we have this imagery. The lake of fire. We talk about hell. Furnace as suffering. We get it. And it says, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this furnace, there's someone walking around in it. It says, there are seven lampstands, seven churches. And in the midst, there's this son of man, a son of God. Someone who appears to be walking around amongst these churches. And you cannot read that. Without going, that's Daniel chapter 3. You can't read it. And John fully intends for you to make this connection. You remember what happened in Daniel chapter 3? If you were in Sunday school, right? I mean, what happens? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, king of Babylon. The the Israelites are in captivity. And he builds a 90-foot idol of gold. 90, 9-0. It's 9 feet wide. Must have been something to see. And the people are commanded to bow down and worship this idol. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we will not. And so what does he do? 
He takes them and he throws them into the fiery furnace. A furnace that is so hot that when the soldiers themselves open the doors and throw them in, they die. They die. But then, as they're in the furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar is looking on. And he doesn't see them. You know, he, he should be seeing these hands and his legs burning up, right? But he doesn't. He sees them walking around. But that's not all that he sees. Listen. It says in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, a great question, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Did you hear that? In the midst of the fiery furnace, Christ comes. And it's, it's this a literal fulfillment of the prophecy given by Isaiah in chapter 43. A prophecy fulfilled for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a prophecy to be fulfilled for you as well. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Listen to these words of encouragement. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. I love that. I love it when, the God, when my God tells me that I'm His. He says, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And the mysterious figure in Daniel chapter 3 is revealed here by John. It's Christ. And so you, you get the connection. You know what he's saying. Shadrach... Meshach and Abednego had nothing to fear in the fiery furnace. So too we, his church, his lampstands, have nothing to fear in the fiery furnace of this time. Why? Because he's walking in our midst. He's here, glorified, gathering us, communing with us, binding us together, growing us, directing us, and counseling us. And again, he says, I tell you, do not fear sin, do not fear death, do not fear Hades. I have the keys. I've done the work. Mission accomplished. Fear not. We hear that and it should bring such great comfort. Because the furnace, the ultimate furnace, which is God's full judgment, the ultimate furnace, which is hell itself, Christ said, I already went in. I was incinerated. I was burned to pieces. I experienced the wrath of God. I experienced the hell. Why? So you don't have to. And he said, and because I went in, I have the keys. I have complete and total control. And if you get that, if you see that he went into the ultimate darkness and he experienced the ultimate forsaking, he lost the face of God. Jesus Christ lost the face of his Father. All the beauty, all the joy, all the life. And he did it so that you... And I, in the midst of this, could have the Father, could have His face. It's so radical, and it will do this for you. Until you see and you know in your heart of hearts that Christ has completed this work for you, you will never ever be able to get through this furnace and you'll never really know that He's with you in the midst of it. He's walking now. He didn't just go and ascend to the right hand of the Father and say, Oh, I hope it all works out. He sent the counsel. He sent the helper. He is in our midst. In the furnaces we face, not hell, not damnation, not the wrath of God, in the furnaces that we face, and they're real, the rejection, it hurts. 
in the physical ailments, in the, in the sickness, in the loss of loved ones, in the times of despair, in the economic catastrophes, in all of this, the loneliness that you experience, when you know and hold on to the ultimate sacrifice made by Christ, I mean really know it and really know that the furnace of hell, the door's been shut, never to be opened again for you. When you know, really know that the price has been fully paid for you, that there's no more debt. When you know this, when you know that you have nothing to pay because Christ paid it in full, then, when the the fire comes, and maybe it's right now in your life, maybe it's burning at your feet right now, and I don't know what it is for you, It may be economics. It may be relational. It may be a husband and a wife. It may be a child. It may be a loss of... Whatever it is, know this. If you know what He's done and you know that He did it for you, then that fire can never kindle on you. It can never burn you. All it can do is refine you. All it can do is make you stronger. All it can do is transform you into the image of this one, this King. The Savior. You go, how, how do I do that though? This, it's real simple and it's hard. You must become master preachers to yourself. You must again and again on a daily basis. If you believe that Jesus Christ actually did this for you. I, not, it sounds so nice. Not Sunday school sheep children. Christ glorified suffered, died, was buried, and rose again, experienced hell, lost the Father. If you know that and you really believe it, then you must say to yourself, no more furnace. The furnace is shut for me. No more debt paid in full for me. In fact, you will say this, all the joy that I've ever wanted, all the love that I've ever wanted to experience, all the happiness, all the satisfaction I now have in Christ, and there's an account for me that is set for me that will never diminish, it'll never be taken away. Do you believe that? You must tell yourself that. You must preach that to yourself. That you have the ultimate wealth in Christ. That you will never be lost. You'll never be forsaken. And to the degree that you get that, to the degree that you really get that and it sinks in, then the fires here will never kindle you. It'll grow you stronger and more vibrant in your faith. You won't become bitter. You won't become judgmental. You won't become filled with hate. You'll be humbled You'll become gracious. You'll be filled with the love and the joy that the Spirit of Christ brings and you'll want to serve and you'll want to grow and you'll want to minister to those who are hurting. Those who are in the furnace and who are being burned up. You'll come to them with the fire extinguisher of the gospel of grace and you will put their fire out. You will be able to say, I can and will face this for you, Jesus, because it is nothing compared to what you faced and overcame for me. In order to understand the seven letters, you got to know the one that was saying it. You got to know it in the gospel narrative Genesis 2, Isaiah 6, Revelation 1. Connect the dots. You were made for God. We screwed it up. And Christ came back and made it right. If we see the letters within the gospel narrative, if we see them being taught to us by this glorified Christ, And that means this. The day of judgment, which is real, will be something that sets your life straight. 
where you will reflect moment by moment and you will say to yourself, if he comes back at this moment, I won't be ashamed. If he comes back at this moment, I'm okay. It means that the face of God that you were made for, that you were purposed for, will no longer elude you because in Christ, He made it right so that you can experience and be in Christ and God again. And it means that the fiery flames that you're experiencing on this side, they'll be like crumbs. Nothing compared to what Christ experienced for you. My prayer is this, for the next seven weeks, that we will listen maybe more acutely than we've ever listened as a church, and ask ourselves, Jesus Christ, speak to Camden Avenue. Tell us, as you told Ephesus, as you told Smyrna, as you told Laodicea, tell us, direct us, and guide us. Because you are the glorified God. That we would say, come into our midst. This Christ, He can handle this neighborhood. This is the Christ that can direct and guide this church. The question is, will we be receptive to Him? Let's pray. It's a grievous thing, Father, to know that we were made and ordained to gaze upon Your face and to walk in Your presence and to experience Your joy and to know that because of our sin, because of the mess that we made, we can't have it. But indeed, it is the good news of the gospel of grace and I would say the greatest joy to know that your son came to rectify that, to make it right, to say no more will these people that you have called Father, that you have ordained to be saved, no more will they walk in darkness, to know that he came and he paid the ultimate price and he indeed, indeed he entered the furnace, he experienced the hell and the blaze and he was disintegrated so that we could be remade. He was torn to pieces so that we could experience the wholeness that comes from being known and knowing the living God. Fantastic. Miraculous. Unbelievable that He would do such a, a, a radical thing for wretches like us. But He did. And this is the good news. How foolish are we who hear this and do not respond. How wicked to turn away such an incredible offering of free grace. I pray we would not. I pray we would hear it. I pray we would receive it. And I pray we as a church, as one church, would live in the light of the glorious light that emanates from the face of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Camden Avenue would not just be a lampstand, but we'd be a brilliant lampstand. And that we would cast out the darkness that permeates this place and this time. And that people would know that we are your children, as you said. We are yours, and you call us that. I pray this for Camden Avenue Baptist Church in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.